Our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans 14. If you have your Bibles there, please, if you'd open them to Romans 14, we're going to be looking at the first nine verses. We're going to stretch in the next three weeks as we go through the 14th chapter of Romans. I'm going to be using many illustrations. Some of them will be, let's see how I put this. They're going to stretch you in ways perhaps you haven't thought about before. And my intent in using the illustrations, although they're accurate illustrations from history, is to not to change your convictions. You have a right to your convictions. What you don't have the right to do is use convictions that are not biblical to judge other people. And that's where this text is going at today. And I want to point out, as we read the scriptures this morning, the emphasis on the mind. We've been saying this as we've journeyed through Romans. Spirituality is more about the way you think, not about the way you feel. And you'll notice what we read in verse 1 of Romans 14. Now, except the one who is weak in faith, and the text literally reads, in the faith. So this is a believer, except the one who's weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So you have judgment and opinions. That takes your mind to be able to do that. Verse 2, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt. See, regard your thinking. The one who does not eat and the one who does not eat is not to judge. And there again, you're thinking the one who eats for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? And there again, it's a mental judgment that's being made here. To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. See, the focus of the mind, that's where spirituality is won or lost. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to the Lord. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now he has just spent the last couple of chapters, 12 and 13, giving us a list of things that really we need to be working on in our own lives. What you don't want to be doing is working on things that aren't even in the Bible, judging people over issues that aren't even scriptural issues. And that is where Paul is addressing This very point in the 14th chapter, it'll take us a couple of weeks to get through. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the text and also the exposition later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today to thank you for the great freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. You have set us free from sin. You've set us free from the law. You've set us free from guilt. You've set us free from condemnation. We thank you that you have given us life, and we thank you for the privilege that we have of living life here. We would ask that you would develop us so that our lives would be an impacting instrument of thy grace and glory. Lord, in this passage we see we do have a responsibility to think, think about many things, even the gray areas. And I pray that you would work in our minds, Lord, and cause us to think the way you'd have us think. We ask that you would work in us so that we could say, as Paul did, we lived our lives in a good conscience before thee. We do not want to 
be loose in our liberty, and we don't want to be legalistic in it either. Our desire is to have a balanced life that pleases thee. So work in our minds and develop our minds and hearts because we do know, as this chapter says, we are going to give an account to you. And I pray that you would keep causing people to grasp the word of God and not become a stumbling block to others. I pray that you would use us in a way that would enable people to become strong. Lord, this text says we soon will see you and that we soon will be analyzed and judged by you. We would pray that you would come get us soon. In Jesus' name, amen. One Sunday at church, a medical doctor, architect, and lawyer were discussing the first chapters of the book of Genesis, and they specifically were discussing what they thought was the oldest profession. The doctor said God removed a rib from Adam to create Eve, so he believed medical surgery was the oldest. The architect said, well, yes, but God designed man before he made him, so engineering is the oldest. And the lawyer said, yes, but everything was in chaos, so being an attorney was the oldest. (laughs) People have a tendency to want to discuss and argue about things that aren't really spelled out in the scriptures. It's one of the favorite pastimes of some believers to argue about things that aren't in the Bible. Someone has a conviction, and you certainly have a right to your convictions. Someone has a conviction, but then they want others to have the same conviction, and they want to argue about the conviction when, in fact, the Bible doesn't address it. And over the years, I've heard heated arguments about all kinds of things. I've heard heated arguments about using a Bible other than the King James. I've heard heated arguments about using a real deck of cards rather than rook cards. I've heard heated arguments about whether one should go to a movie, go to an opera, or see a play. I've heard heated arguments over the kind of music that people like. It's okay if you like Mancini, Welk, or Manavani but not Hank Williams, Tammy Wynette, or the Eagles, Beatles, or Beach Boys. I've heard heated arguments over drinking a glass of wine or having a beer. I've heard heated arguments over beards, mustaches, wearing makeup, eating in certain restaurants, mixed bathing, going to a lake, going to an ocean, watering the lawn on Sunday, mowing a lawn on Sunday, and having cable TV. One of the more interesting debates I overheard between two women in a church when we were in Grand Rapids is that they were arguing over whether or not it was legitimate for a husband and wife to dance in the privacy of their own home. You had one rigid woman who, by the way, wasn't married. I'll interject that because that's the truth, and it's a good thing she wasn't. And she was arguing that the couple had no right to dance in their own home. And the other woman said, well, we've been married for a lot of years, so if we don't have a right to dance, what do you think God thinks of the other things we do? (laughs) Now, the context of this is critical, because when it comes to the subject of gray areas, we're not talking about things the Bible says are sinful. I want to be very clear on this point. Paul had just given a specific list of those kinds of things, He said to believers, you get them out of your life. These are things you don't want in your life. You don't want to be a person who's given to drunken intoxication. You don't want to be a person who's involved in carousing, involved in immoral behavior. You don't want to be a person who lies or steals, or you are a person of strife and jealousy. That's sin stuff. It's dark stuff. It's depraved stuff. Make no provision for your flesh. Get rid of that. But this discussion comes after that list. 
It's true, there are some things that Bible spells out as being sinful, but there are other things that are great. They're just not classified as right or wrong. Now, Paul was no rigid legalist, and he realized the grace and freedom that believers have in Jesus Christ, so he decided to address the subject. Back in his day, you had three big gray areas, apparently, that the people were arguing about. One of them was the gray area of diets. There were some people that were saying, you can't eat meat, or you can't eat certain meats. It's okay to kill plants and eat the plants, but you don't want to do that with meat. And apparently there were some people propagating the idea that certain meats, if they had been sacrificed to an idol or if they were a certain kind of meat, you didn't have any right to eat that, so they're arguing over that. A second argument was an argument concerning days. There were some people that were just big on Sabbath days. Oh, you've got to observe the Sabbath day. And they didn't think about Sunday being the Lord's Day after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's when the people got together and worshipped the Lord. And there were people that were inventing things that you had to observe their special days on the day they said, or you weren't quite spiritual, you weren't measuring up to their standard. And the other gray area was that of drinking, drinking wine. He'll mention that in the 21st verse of this chapter. We'll see it in a couple of weeks. Wine versus not drinking wine. Now we could expand the list a little bit because... We've gone from that list to things like recreation, clothing. I mean, the Bible makes it clear that when we worship God, we are to wear modest clothing, but then people get in arguments about that. We've added grooming. Some say, oh boy, if you're real spiritual, you'll never dye your hair. But if you're not spiritual, you will. We have arguments concerning birth control and schooling. Oh boy, you've got to school them our way and in our home, not somewhere else, and lifestyles. All of that is now in play. Now in view of Paul's admonition in chapter 13, verse 14, make no provision for the flesh, one believer might say, well, these are flesh provisions. These are wrong. And another believer might say, no, they're not. Listen, I just want to be up front on this issue here. God has given us plenty in his word to work on, hasn't he? I mean, you take that list in chapters 12 to 13, and don't you find in those chapters you have enough to work on right there in those two chapters and reflecting the grace of God. Do you think we need to invent stuff that isn't there? That doesn't even make sense. Why would we devote ourselves to things not there when we have clear records on things that God does want us to apply? So what Paul says here is, look, we have no right to judge each other on gray area issues. We need to be working on our own lives based on the fact that we belong to the Lord and we will be judged by the Lord. As I pointed out in the scripture reading this morning, Paul places a major priority on the way people think, the way they use their mind. Spirituality is not a matter of how we feel, it's a matter of how we think with our minds and honest evaluation. Before we get into this, this doesn't mean that parents cannot set rules for their children and expect them to honor those rules while they're in their home. I mean, some child may say, well, you can't show me in the Bible, mom or dad, where it says this. You have a right to establish rules for your own home. An employer has a right to establish rules on their place of work and expect employees to honor that. So it doesn't talk about this. It doesn't mean that a school cannot set standards expects students to honor those standards. What this text is saying is we don't have a right to become the judge and the jury of somebody else's spirituality based on gray areas. 
you have a right to your own convictions. You have a right to that. You do not have a right to assume that your convictions should be everyone's convictions. If the Bible says it, then it should be all of our convictions. But if the Bible doesn't specifically say it, or we can't point to areas that specifically address it, then we're better off just saying, well, that's my conviction. I'm not trying to impose my conviction on you. Now, there are three reasons why Paul lays out in this first part of the 14th chapter why we have no right to judge each other. The first one is because it's a command of God. I want you to notice, now accept the one who's weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. For one person has faith and he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The verbs accept, regard with contempt, and judge, they're all imperatives. What that means is God says, I'm commanding my people to stop judging each other over ridiculous gray areas. Now, I want to, before we launch into this, clearly define from a biblical perspective a weak believer versus a strong believer, and it'll probably be just the opposite of what you think. The word weak comes from a Greek verb that refers to one that God considers to be weak, sick, frail, lacking strength, doctrinally and spiritually. That's what he has in mind when he uses the term weak. The word is used by Paul two times here, once in verse 1 and again in verse 2. When we examine the context, God defines and classifies who's weak. He classifies who's strong. And before we define this, I want to say I've been both, personally. I've been both. I started out as a weak one thinking I was strong, but I really thought I was strong when I was in a weak condition. My background led me to that. When we were kids, we went to a church, and they just had all kinds of rules. And that's why when you read our Constitution, you don't see a bunch of rules there. We had all kinds of rules, and then you had ministers that were standing there. I'm not sure how much they knew. They were enforcing the rules. And as a result of that, I grew up thinking, well, that's how you are if you're strong. And you must be like that if you're strong. Turns out I'm weak. But as I got under the Word of God and began to be taught and opened up these books of the Bible and the doctrines that we were learning, I thought, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm not the strong one. I'm the weak one. Now, the weak believer is the one with all the scruples. In other words, the weak believer is the one who's rigid. The weak believer is one who believes that by not eating meat, he's more spiritual. A weak believer is the kind of person who thinks if he's a vegetarian... He's in a greater relationship and standing with God than the one who eats meat. A weak believer really thinks that. The legalist thinks delusionally that he's the strong one. Now Paul uses that as an illustration here. The weak one thinks that you should only eat vegetables. That's what he says in verse 2. We have no idea why this guy thought that. He certainly didn't get it from the word of God. He certainly didn't get it from the teachings of Paul. We know in Acts chapter 10 that Peter said you can eat anything and God has given us the right to eat anything we want to eat. So I have no idea how this guy developed this idea. He developed this idea that you were more spiritual if you were a vegetarian and didn't eat meat. But Paul is very clear on this point. This is the one who's weak in the faith. The legalist doesn't grasp grace. 
the legalist doesn't grasp the position that he has in Christ. He actually believes his legalistic rules add something to faith. So weak believers devote themselves to a rigid, ascetic, legalistic existence, and they invent all kinds of rules and standards, and they live by a philosophy that says, handle not, taste not, touch not. There's your weak believer, the one who seems to have all the scruples. But then the second one that he talks about is the strong believer. And I'm going to assume that most in Rome probably fell into the strong category based on the fact that Paul's going to present two dangers for the strong ones and one danger for the weak one. So I'm going to assume that a lot of the Roman believers were mature, they had a handle on doctrine, they were pretty stable in grace, they understood what Paul taught them in Romans, and the strong believer is the one without the scruples. A strong believer from God's classification is one that doesn't live by rules and high standards according to the rigid legalist. He believes he has liberty. A strong believer believes he has liberty to enjoy all kinds of things. He has liberty to enjoy meats, drink wine, not become a drunk, but drink wine and live life. He doesn't seem to have the strong convictions that the weak one has. The fact is, in most churches, the weaker believer will be viewed as the real spiritual believer when, in fact, he's the least spiritual believer. In most churches, the one with the scruples will be heralded as being well-grounded in doctrine and theology when, in fact, he isn't. And what really upsets me is that you have a bunch of these, in my opinion, weaker people in pulpits. You're thinking, did you ever go through a book of the Bible? When you were in school? Do you ever have to go through this text in Romans or Galatians? I mean, they just aren't strong, and neither is their congregation. So their congregation just basically follows what they say. That's where I was. I heard of a pastor who got out of school. I read this story. Boy, he was on a warpath against the use of tobacco. I'm not promoting the use of tobacco, but I'm going to use some tobacco illustrations today. And this minister who got out of school was on a warpath against the use of tobacco. And the first church he lands is right in the middle in the south of tobacco country. And the farmers, the farmers who were in the church, had used the money from the tobacco industry to build the church. But he's been in school and he's been brainwashed to believe something the scriptures didn't even teach. So Paul says, you don't want to get in a habit of judging each other. Recognize who the weak one is. Recognize who the strong one is. And then he says, there are dangers for the weak believer who are at an immature level. And the main danger for the weak believer is that of judgment. That of judgment. Who are you to judge the servant of another? So his problem as a weak believer, a judgment. You see, a legalistic person is always going around judging people by their codes. Their codes that they've invented themselves. They're not making judgments based on what the scriptures teach. They're going around analyzing people based on their own convictions. They become the judge and jury. The weak believer judges people. And if they don't measure up to their rules and regulations, they judge them as not spiritual and perhaps not even saved. I wonder what they're going to do when they run into John Calvin someday. 
who as part of his salary demanded seven barrels of wine annually in Geneva. Yeah, I ought to talk to the board about that. That'd be good. (laughs) Yeah, you going to go up to Calvin? Yeah, you've been used mightily by God like Calvin. You going to go up to Calvin in eternity and say, we just didn't agree with you on that. Calvin was a moderate. I mean, he didn't believe he should get drunk. But he certainly was not one who just was against that, obviously. It was part of his package. So in some regards, the weak believer will judge anybody. They would judge somebody like Calvin. In fact, I'll use some illustrations where they did do that. So there's the danger that the weak believer has. The weak believer goes around the church, spots other believers. They don't agree with them. They don't follow their rules. They don't give in to their codes. And they just start making judgments. But the danger for the strong believer is twofold. First of all, they have a danger of verbal arguments. The mature believer has a tendency to get into arguments and debates that can destroy a weaker brother or sister. In fact, the word passing judgment on his opinions literally refers to questioning and debating and reasoning. So a strong believer, he's not intimidated at all by the weak believer. The strong believer quite frankly, doesn't mind getting in heated arguments with the weaker believer. He can put him under the carpet if he wants to because a strong believer understands the word of God. A strong believer understands doctrine. A strong believer can blast the theology of a weak believer to bits. But the problem is, for a strong believer to do that, you can blast the believer to bits. And secondly, the danger of mental contempt. Verse 3 The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. That word contempt means that a strong believer can actually get to the point where they just see the weaker believer as being of no value. I mean, they actually look down on this person. The mature believer can begin to say, this guy, this gal, they've come up with other codes that aren't in the word of God, and they can actually write them off. Paul says, you don't want to do that. Neither side wants to do that. A weak believer should not be about judging a strong believer, and the strong believer shouldn't be about arguing or getting in a contemptuous way of thinking about the weak believer. We've been commanded by God. God says, stop that. Stop that. Don't judge each other on gray areas. The second reason is because we're all the property of God. Verse 3, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We're not to waste our time judging each other over gray areas, because when we do, we're making judgments against something that belongs to God. There are to be judgments at times we are to make in the church. We have to. We have to follow biblical things on biblical issues. But there's a right way to handle it. We must realize when we're making those judgments, I'm dealing with the property of God here. So I have to be careful, even when making a judgment. And there are two reasons why you don't want to waste your time judging each other over ridiculous gray areas. Are we talking sin issues? That's another issue. We're not talking about that. We're talking about gray areas. Because God has accepted the person. And that word accept means that God has brought that person to himself. Listen. I don't care if the person's strong or weak, if they're a believer in Jesus Christ, what we need to realize is God took an interest in that individual, 
He pulled that individual to himself and he saved him. He grafted him into a relationship with him. That person belongs to God whether he's weak or strong. Now if God did that for someone, who in the world are we to judge him over gray areas? And secondly, because God owns him. That's what he says. To his own master he stands or falls. The pronoun another means another of the same kind. The point is, who are we in the world to judge other believers? Because we're both in the family of God. I mean, we're both owned by the Lord. We're all accountable to God. We stand or fall before the Lord. In fact, you'll get into it. We're all going to go to the Bema seat. We're going to face the judgment of God. So all of us, no matter if we're weak or strong, are dependent on God's grace to make us stand in a relationship with him, every one of us. Whether you would be a weak believer or a strong believer here today would be dependent upon the Lord to make us stand in a relationship with him. He's the master. He's the owner. We're not. So he said, don't waste your time judging each other. You've got a command of God. You are the property of God. And thirdly, because we all have personal individual responsibility, verses 5 to 9. These are important verses. There are various degrees of knowledge and maturity and growth. When it comes to gray areas, there's flexibility in thinking. We're not a bunch of clones. And we're not a bunch of clones that have come up with some legalistic set of rules and everybody has to follow the rules we've come up with. We want to follow the word of God. And one of the problems that existed back in the first century was the problem of days. I mean, more than likely, the Jews thought Sabbath days, those are the days you have to worship God. And if you're not, you're less than spiritual in a relationship with God. And then they had all these other sabbatical days they had invented. And their thinking is worshiping the Lord on the first day of the week, Sunday, which is the day of the resurrection, which is the day that the church has worshiped God ever since Christ arose from the dead, the first day of the week. That's not good enough. No, you can't really worship God if you're in that vein. You have to worship God on our Sabbath day and follow our codes. Now, we've taken that to a whole new level. Way beyond that. No, you can't just worship God on the Lord's day and be fed and taught the scriptures and then go out and live your life for the rest of the week. We've got to have a special day called Lent. Lent, we've got to have that. That's invented by men. That's a code, a religious code. We've got to have a Good Friday service. Boy, if we don't have a Good Friday service, we're going to be like second-class believers. We've got to have an Easter sunrise service. I used to have to go to this. See, I used to be the weak, I used to be the legalist guy. You need to understand that about me. I used to be this. I would go to the Easter sunrise service, and then what I'd discover is I would go to the worship service, I'd go to sleep because I'd eaten pancakes and eggs, and I was, I'd go to sleep, which most of you do in the service I preach, so I get it. <laughs> We've got to have a special Christmas Eve service, or our spirituality or fall apart. We've got to have a special day service. No, we don't have to do that. No, what we have to do is we have to have Sunday, but boy, don't you dare eat in a restaurant on Sunday. Now, here's what you can do on Sunday. You can go to church, and then you can go home, and you can eat pot roast and take a nap. Don't go for a ride in the car. If you do go for a ride in the car, don't stop and get gas. 
Don't let the kids ride the bikes. Don't let them go outside and throw a ball. Don't let them go outside and shoot baskets. On and on and on it goes. Days. And there are three points Paul wanted to develop concerning individual responsibility. Number one, every believer has a right to think in terms of his own conscience. Verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. You have a right in Christ to develop your own way of thinking. You have your own mind. You have a right to think the way you think about different things. Paul said in Acts chapter 23, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up until this day. Your conscience will be that inner part of you that assesses what you believe versus how you behave. Your conscience is that inside of you that once you make a decision to do something, it either agrees with what you believe or it doesn't. There's an old saying that says, let your conscience be your guide. We're not discussing any sin issues here, by the way. We're talking about gray issues. So if you think something is sinful and then you go ahead and do it, then you are violating your conscience. If you realize I have the liberty in Christ to do this and it doesn't violate your conscience, you have the liberty in Christ to do this. The point that Paul is trying to make here is don't do something that will offend your conscience. When it comes to gray areas, you think about you. You think about you and your perspective, your understanding of the scriptures. If you can thank God for it, if you can enjoy it before the Lord, you have the liberty to do it. If you can't, you don't. Now, when I taught at the Grand Rapids School of the Bible Music, they had rules. I had to sign my name to a contract that I would agree to those rules. Some of those rules I didn't actually agree with, but as long as I was there and signed my name to that contract, I was obligated to follow them. You can't take a little child and give the little child a loaded gun to play with. And some of these kids that were coming to school, they weren't coming from the most stable of environments. And you couldn't just say, all right, you have total freedom in Christ, so go out there and live the way that you want. And so I was responsible to submit to authority over me, and I did that. Now, as we grow and mature, we start to see things a little differently, especially in light of the scriptures. And we begin to decipher what is right and true according to the word of God. What isn't? My mind and my conscience may think something is okay. Your mind and your conscience may think something is not okay. Down the road, we may develop in our mind and conscience to the point where we see it differently. Neither of us may be wrong. We just may think differently. What is wrong is if we start judging each other over ridiculous gray areas. So Paul says each person needs to think in terms of his own conscience. We're not talking about sin issues. Sin issue is a sin issue. I don't care if your conscience says it's okay. It isn't okay. But we're talking about gray issues. Secondly, each individual is to think in terms of God. Verse 6, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So, Concerning gray areas, we need to think in terms of what brings glory to God. And I want to tell you there have been a lot of different guys that have developed a lot of different ideas about things like that. John Wesley thought drinking tea was sin, but drinking wine was okay. 
fact, he wrote letters. Said, stay away from tea because it isn't good. One of the more famous guys who is just a character is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was used mightily by God, the prince of preachers. I mean, this guy, he doesn't get any better, and Spurgeon was known to enjoy a good cigar. By the way, so did G. Campbell Morgan and some others that I could cite. Mr. Miles told me a very famous, and I'm not going to repeat the name, but when he was in school in Dallas, this guy was in school when he was in Dallas in the 1939 and 40s, and he said he would walk up the seminary classroom with a big cigar in his mouth and throw it down before he went into class. Well, one Sunday, a friend of Spurgeon's was speaking at his church. He didn't know that Spurgeon liked to smoke. So he went on a diatribe in the pulpit against the use of tobacco. And he stood up and he said, I was addicted to tobacco and God delivered me and you need to stay away from it. It's sinful and it's evil. And he went on and on and on about tobacco. When he got done, Mr. Spurgeon stood up as only he could. He walked to the pulpit. He said, that was a fine message our brother preached. Now I'm going to dismiss the service in prayer, go to my study and smoke my pipe to the glory of God. That was Spurgeon. One time a Methodist minister challenged Spurgeon about his smoking cigars. Spurgeon said, if I ever find myself smoking to excess, I promise I'll quit. And the Methodist minister said, well, what do you consider being excess? And he said, smoking two cigars at the same time. (laughs) I like Spurgeon. He's a good guy. On another occasion, he was traveling first class by a railroad to go to an event that he was to speak at. And there was some antagonist who didn't like Spurgeon, who was also traveling on the same train. And Spurgeon was up in the first class travel level of train travel. And he walked up to Spurgeon and he said, what are you doing here in first class? And then he said to Spurgeon, I'm riding in third class because I want to take care of the Lord's money. And Spurgeon said, well, I'm riding up here in first class because I want to take care of the Lord's servant. Here's the point. These guys knew they had liberty in Christ. He had a good conscience, a clean conscience, and I am not promoting the use of tobacco. Spurgeon actually thought it was healthy. We now know from medical doctors that it's not healthy. It's not good to get involved in that. But that is exactly what Spurgeon thought back then in the 1800s, and he thought it was a healthy thing to do. So He had freedom in Christ. His conscience didn't bother him, and that's what he did. He knew he was accountable to God. Man, oh man, that guy was used mightily by God all over the world, but he made up his own mind. Who are we to judge him on that? Who of us is going to be used like Spurgeon was used? I mean, who are we in being in a position to say, oh boy, that's something, boy, that's a rule you don't want to... I mean, we're in no position to do that, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Look, you're going to give your own account to the Lord, so don't waste your life judging people on gray areas. And then he says, each individual is to think in terms of eternity. Verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. What we all need to realize is, boy, if we live, we live for the Lord here. If we die, we're going to be with the Lord. And if we've believed on Jesus Christ, we belong to the Lord. 
We're forever secure in having a relationship with the Lord. Gray areas have nothing to do with this. We live our lives for the Lord. We die to the Lord. Everyone who's believed in Jesus Christ belongs to the Lord. Now, we don't want to hurt people with our view on gray areas. As you'll see as we go through this chapter and continue on through it, your gray areas, keep them to yourself. Keep your mouth shut. Don't let people know what you know you have the liberty to enjoy. If you assume you have some liberty, just keep it to yourself and keep it before God. Keep your mouth shut. But don't waste your time fighting over gray areas. Invest it. Living. Learning. Loving for the Lord. And what this book of Romans certainly teaches is if you will believe in Jesus Christ with all of your quirks and with all of your failures and flaws, no matter where you have come from, the Lord will accept you and make you stand. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of background, and you'll be forever saved. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior right now in this moment, you can settle that. Just invite him to come in and be your Savior. Invite him into your life. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we need to refocus, especially on Communion Sunday, we need to refocus on who it is and what it is that gives us a standing with you. It's certainly not us. It's your precious son and what he did. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And I pray that we would continue to grow and mature. We would become strong. I pray we would be people who would encourage each other in the things of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.